Hey there, I'm Kristen Pridgen, and I'm a health educator and an entrepreneur. But more importantly, I'm a woman who's learning to love her whole self, live holistically, and experience life to the full. On the Holy Temple Podcast, I share holistic wellness tips and talk to folks who are living with intention. We believe the body is a temple and every room deserves to be honored and reverenced, mind, body, and spirit. So tell me, how do you respect your Holy Temple? Welcome back to the Holy Temple Podcast. Today's episode is really juicy, and it's about a topic that I was super excited to include on this show. We're talking about sexual wellness. Now, there's more to sexual health than just HIV and STD education and prevention. Sexuality and sensuality play a role in our lives from birth to death, and we need to be educated on sexual health throughout each phase of our lives. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Tanya Bass, also known as the Southern Sexologist, about the importance of sexual wellness. She has devoted her public health career as a sexuality educator, working to increase awareness of sexual health as a part of the wellness spectrum and eliminating the stigma behind the topic of sex. Tanya is also the founder of the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference. She serves as the lead instructor for human sexuality at North Carolina Central University's Department of Public Health Education, Eagle Pride, (laughs) And she's a current member of the editorial board for the American Journal of Sexuality Education. So to make it plain, Tanya knows her stuff about sexual wellness. This conversation was so good. We talked about sexual education in faith communities. We chat about her first sex job. And we even talk about mothers and daughters having that conversation about that good old WAP. (laughs) So I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. Let's dive in. Hey, Tanya, how are you doing today? Hey, finding you. Thanks for having me on. Yes, yes, I'm so excited that you're here. So share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to educating others on sexual health and sexual wellness. Sure. So um, my background is primarily in public health, actually. And um, I started my interest in sexual health primarily from a prevention perspective. So I had been working in like HIV, STI, prevention education, and I had been doing it, um, you know, with college campuses, in the community. I've worked for a few health departments. I was a disease intervention specialist, like going out and doing partner notification. And the more I was doing that, the more I realized like there needed to be more done for persons living with HIV. And so In that way, I helped develop a peer education program. And so in this program, people who were living with HIV and AIDS for, you know, had experience or years or at least experience in the North Carolina system, they were actually serving as peer supports for newly diagnosed people. And so in that, we started talking about like disclosure and intimacy and sensuality, kind of like taking care of yourself and understanding that you're a sexual being and the HIV diagnosis is not going to stop your wants and your desires. And literally in researching and building that curriculum is when I was like, hey, there's more to sexual health than just the prevention stuff. We need to talk about the rest of this stuff. And so I feel like the rest is history, but that's pretty much when um, I pivoted in the work that I was doing in sexual health. 
That is awesome. Now tell me how you got your name, the Southern Sexologist, because I love that. (laughs) Now that is actually a pretty funny story. So I'm originally from Brooklyn and people are like, oh, you say it all the time. But I'm like, so I'm always going to keep my Brooklyn roots. And if you make me angry enough, you will hear the Brooklyn accent. So it's good that, you know, I'm I'm, I'm usually have like a, a little Southern vernacular. That means I'm happy and we're good people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, honestly. And so my family is from North Carolina. My family roots Eastern North Carolina. And so when I was thinking about branding myself and coming up with a name, I toyed around with this and I, t- I feel tested it. And I really liked it. I liked saying it. I liked the feel and people gave me great feedback. A few people were like, but you're not a Southerner and, and or, you know, some of the negative things about Southern life. And so I embraced it and actually, you know, holding on to some of the things that I align with in, in terms of being in the South. And I'm in North Carolina, so... Part of the South. So that's how I came to be. I love it. I love that it's catchy and it tells what you do. So can you explain a little bit more how you pivoted from HIV prevention and peer support to talking about the other side of sexual health and wellness? What do you provide? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that I focus on is that people have to understand that we're sexual from birth to death. And I think we think that even sexuality education is for the young. So, you know, most people, when when they think you're going to teach about sex, they expect you to teach middle to high school, maybe college, and, and that's it. And so the way I approach um, sexuality education is like, you know, when you're a little child and you're getting hugs or not getting hugs from the people in your family, I always think about my sexuality in terms of my senses too, because we don't talk about that. And one of the biggest things like bringing back memory and pleasure and joy and not just related to my genitals, but I remember my mom putting on oxima. I remember watching her that shaped who I am as a woman. I also like the smell. Like I don't use it very often, but it just makes when I do, when I'm around it, or if I do buy it, just to um, be close and think about my mom. And so I wanted to start doing work that allowed people to understand their sexuality kind of in a 360 view and not just the act of sex or being partnered and all of that. Like to really think about pleasure, your senses, intimacy, you know, all those things. And some of the other mechanics of sex do come into play, but just even knowing that, you know, breastfeeding your child is part of their sexual growth and development. It's part of the way you bond with your child. That's, you know, bonding and and intimacy. That's part of our sexuality. I felt it was just important to start educating um, from that perspective. That is really interesting that you said it that way, that we're sexual from birth to death, because I've never thought about it, that breastfeeding is a part can be a part of that sexual experience. Is that what you're trying to say? Or yeah, for the child and the mom. So like, think about the intimacy that, you know, a mom and a child would have if they're, um, and I probably should say chest feeding, right? But that in, during that moment of like bonding, connecting, even looking at each other, touching, smelling, all those things like that creates that bond. I know in uh, social development courses, they talk about like the skin bond and the importance of touch. All of that is still related to our sexual development as well. That is so interesting, but it yeah. makes sense what you're saying too, because as you said, that it's still utilizing your senses as well. 
Yeah, I feel like when we're talking about it in school, because everybody is so focused on the genitals that they don't focus on the brain and the brain is the biggest sex organ. And so the brain controls the senses. It controls your ability to fantasize. So I think maybe I should say my approach is like brain based in that, you know, thinking about all the things that the brain controls and how it shows up in our sexuality. Very cool. Now let's talk a little bit more about how sexual wellness needs to be a part of the conversation in regards to overall wellness, because as you mentioned, sex education, a lot of times is viewed as the sex ed classes that students take at school, or if you get it in a faith-based setting, it's more so just talking about abstinence, but you don't really have that conversation in adulthood or just talking about it in the wellness space. So how do you put that into play? Yeah, I think we just start from the basics. Like, I know people will say that I'm a woman of faith. And so people will say, well, the faith community doesn't really talk about sex. I was like, well, actually they do. It's just what they're saying isn't always, let's say, positive or affirming. Um, We use the term sex positive. And so from a wellness perspective, I think it's just about being able to have a positive and a good quality of life. So there's aspects, you know, when we talk about mental health, we'll say, you know what, you need to get, you know, you should go and get therapy. And so sometimes when we're doing that, we're taking care of our mind, it connects back again to our sexuality. Like there may be some things that our partners may do that we don't like, we're afraid to communicate that or some things that desires that we have, we're afraid to communicate that. Or, you know, we need to figure out the why and the what we can do to manage it. So maybe there's some childhood trauma. That's part of being, you know, taking care of that is part of your wellness. There may be a lack of pleasure or low libido and desire. You got to talk about that too. Like you might need to talk to a mental health counselor and a doctor. So I feel like that might be one area in addition to mental health, because I think that's a challenge too. But I think sexual health and mental health are some of the areas that we kind of like put back because it's more about being able to do so. Like if you can go to work, you can go to school, you can take care of your family, you can, you know, all the other attributes of wellness, we kind of focus on that. And I think that we don't always give full attention to sexual wellness. I definitely agree with you that we do tend to put mental health and sexual health on the back burner a lot of times. And there's also a negative connotation or like a stigma behind them. And thankfully in the mental health space, I think that stigma is being dismantled, but I think there's definitely work to be done in regards to sexual health and sexual wellness and removing that stigma. So how do you help to eliminate that negative connotation when you're talking about sexual health? Because you also speak to a diverse group of individuals when you're talking about sexual health. You've worked with faith-based communities, You've worked with children as well. So how do you help to eliminate that negative connotation revolving around sex? Yeah, I try to frame it from just like any body function, like in a sense, when we think about our sexuality in in terms of like even desire, um, like when we have an appetite, like, you know, we get hungry. So sometimes we might get aroused. We might uh, have feelings of like, we want to engage with someone or maybe by ourselves, I don't know, you know, whatever you like to do in a safe way. And I think that we have to look at it as it is normal. We were made this way and anything that happens or comes up for us is your normal. So we can't even compare ourselves to other people because that would be the worst mistake because we're just our own sexual beings. And being able to talk about it 
I think, and many of my experiences have been, once you start the conversation to make it okay, the floodgates open because then people just want to keep talking about it. Or, you know, they might've been hesitant and then they'll ask you, it's like, so well, let me ask you this, or let's talk about that. So I think once we let it be okay to talk about, that people will be open to talk about it. I think a lot of times, and especially in communities of color, because of historical injustices and the lack of bodily autonomy in particular so society as a whole isn't necessarily sex positive and I think when we look at subgroups of communities of color in particular for like my experience the African-American community because we hadn't had years worth of bodily autonomy we haven't had years worth of culturally appropriate and reflective sexuality education it does tend to be harder sometimes to have these conversations because we have so many challenges or restrictions that we're breaking through or traditions even that we're breaking through. Mm-hmm. As an aside, like I remember when I got my first official sex job was um, I was doing an STD hotline and oh my gosh, we had this huge book. I already knew about like STDs, but like you had to really learn everything like and almost to the point where it was like memorized even though you had it and so people would call in and ask questions and so I knew a lot of this stuff front to back and I remember going home on Thanksgiving I could not stop talking about syphilis I could not like and my family was just like enough already <laughs> it, it wasn't that they they never made me feel bad about it it was just like okay we've had enough let's try to eat our dinner here but it was this the freeing Uh, or the freeing feeling of being able to say, I'm sitting here at Thanksgiving dinner talking to my family about how syphilis works in the body and they're listening, but they've actually had enough, but nobody was mad at me. (laughs) That is so funny, (laughs) but it's it's awesome to hear that too, because I think in families too, it's somewhat of a stigma to talk about sex or even, you know, STDs or just the different sides that come into play in regards to sexual health. So I think that's really cool that you were able to, to have that experience with your family. How do you navigate it? Do you work with families? I've, I've had an experience where I was a mother and a daughter where, you know, there were conversations where I was kind of like the go-between, but it allowed them to have um, better communication. I haven't worked with like a full family. Like when I think about a full family is like, two adults or two kids or something like, you know, or one, one child, but I have worked with families in a sense of like trying to help bridge the gap between the parent and the child more so, especially during COVID. Cause listen, kids are home more now mm-hmm. and the stuff that they've been doing is already natural. So I'm just going to put it out there. And, and the stuff that they've been searching on the internet, they were doing it before, mm-hmm. or now they even have more opportunity to do it. So I feel like I've had more conversations around accessing porn and masturbation now more than ever and trying to normalize it. Like, you know, some parents are just like freaking out and ready to punish their kids or take away their devices. And I try to help them see it as what we call a teachable moment and that maybe you should have a conversation about what they're doing and why they shouldn't be doing it. Like I had one parent who calmly explained to her child that um, what they were accessing was not appropriate for them. They weren't old enough. And that actually, if someone were to find it on, like, I think they were using the um, parent's device that, you know, they could get in trouble, which is like, 
in theory true. Like you shouldn't have children accessing porn or, you know, some of these things, but they're doing it. And we just have to actually use it as what I think is a, a teachable moment to have a conversation. I also teach college classes and I had a really cool conversation about generational conversations. We discuss music, hip hop and whatever in my class, like it's pretty good way to like have conversations about sexuality, but focus on like maybe music that's popular. And so I don't know if you are familiar with um, Cardi B and Megan the Stallion oh, yeah. on the WAP. Um, and so we were talking about WAP in class and it was the one day that none of my male identifying students were there and it was all female. And we were just talking, I was like, so have you heard the song? What do you think about it? They told me. And I was like, but have your aunties, mamas or older family members talk to you about it? And they were just like, oh my God, yes. So like one student was just like, my mom's like, hey, you heard this song? Like, she was like, get out. And then another one was like, I can't believe you're listening to it. And she said it was a revelation. It was in a car. And she said it was a revelation for her mom to be like, whoa you're actually not my little girl anymore. Like you're still my child, but I'm, she she said that her mom actually finally saw her as like a woman mm-hmm. by having a conversation just about this song. And I was like, although I know it got negative um, reviews and people have said a lot of things, but that's nothing new because they've done that since Forever. music has been around. Yeah. But I thought it was exciting to be able to have conversations, whether uncomfortable or joyous for these students in this class. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, WAP is a, a great example. And <laughs> yeah, that conversation was was shared amongst a lot of families. I know my mom had, had talked to me about she's like, I can't believe they're saying this. And I was like, I like it. Like it's so body positive, sex positive. If you got it, own it. So for me, I and I enjoy sex. I enjoy talking about sex. Like this, I can just bring it up and I feel fine with it. Yeah. And I know that other people aren't necessarily that that comfortable with it but it's so awkward whenever I have to talk about sex with my mom I'm just like hmm, like how much well, it's, talk to you about it's this <laughs> funny because I feel like early in my career um minus the simplest stuff like especially when it was prevention stuff like it was kind of like okay time does prevention she does HIV prevention blah blah but then when I started pivoting and doing more sexual health or you know education overall it was kind of like somewhat awkward, but then it was just like, well, this is what we do. This is what we talk about. And I found at my, um, the North Carolina sexual health conference, because I am so much invested in professional development for myself and for my colleagues here in North Carolina. And I remember I was like, mommy, are you going to come to my conference? And she was like, yes. And so I was like, and you can learn for yourself. I was like, I kind of wish we had this relationship when I was younger, but I'm definitely enjoying it now. Like she's wearing some of my shirts. I'm like, mommy, well, technically you're not a sexually educated kid wear this. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) She's walking around. She's talking to people in her building and her friends, having me send them pamphlets and condoms and lube. And she's going through all the things that we had, were giving away one year at the conference. And she was like, oh, I'm going to take this for so-and-such and like taking things back to her friends. So I wish that we had had that when I was younger, but I definitely still appreciate it now. Yeah. She's become the community health worker. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's she so is. good. That's so good. Yeah, those conversations are so important to have and to remove the stigma behind sex and sexual behaviors and acts because there's so much that can be 
placed on children, a lot of shame and guilt. You mentioned like what kids are doing, especially now during this time of COVID and that they've been doing, but there's so much shame and guilt that's, that can be placed on you, especially at a young age around sex. And then, you know, you wind up thinking that certain things you like or think about are bad when that's not necessarily true. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and I like that you said that you are a unique sexual being and your needs and desires may vary from somebody else's and that's mm-hmm. okay. So I want to ask you, why is talking about sexual health vital across the lifespan? We've talked about how you talk to college kids. You've also worked with um, mothers and daughters or you know parents and children, but why is it important to talk about your sexual wellness throughout your life? I think it's important because we have to. It's like we're just floundering around. And when you pick up most of the information, like I said, it's kind of like a K-12 purview. But there needs to, like when you think about conversations that you've had about, although I hate using this term, but it's one that people are familiar with, I think, is like good touch, bad touch. That Mm -hmm. was a sexual health conversation. And it was also about consent. It was about bodily autonomy. But think about you learn that at like maybe early in early childhood, you kind of kept it around around elementary, but then it just seemed like it went out the window. And now we're like trying to um, shove consent conversations. It's kind of like, well, we should have kept talking about it exactly. because, you know, just because I'm um, older doesn't mean, you know, I still need to protect my body and be able to tell people no confidently. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, I've seen some little kids telling people no, and like, they mean it and you better not touch them. Or if they don't want to hug you, they're not going to hug you. But it seems like as you go through um, development, it becomes more challenging and you it seems like you either get more fearful about saying no or um, navigating coercion. And then as you pivot into young adulthood, people assume that any of the information that you got K-12, so I'm going to say 9 through 12, you're just going to remember. Mm-hmm. When a lot of people don't get a full comprehensive sex ed course, they get some information. So by the time I see them in college, I have done a middle school activity in my class with students around body parts. And I don't even get into like the internal. This is all external. And they're like, what? Like, So they don't know. They don't remember. But, you know, that's one of the things we focus on. So it's like you hadn't had this information since possibly ninth grade. There's no way you can remember it. So then if you go into even older adulthood, let's say, I'll say those are young adults, so maybe middle age. Um, I think you've even seen it on TV or, or, or shows like, one of my favorite ones to talk about is Orange is the New Black, where um, some of the women didn't know that they had a urethra, a vagina, and an anus. And so like, it's laughable, but it's so true because I've worked in communities where they're like, wait, what? So a lot of people think you urinate and have your period out of the same hole or whatever. So that's something. And even through all of this, as we go through the stages, your body is changing. So we focus a lot about the changes during puberty, but you change again as you're getting older, if you have babies, if you put on weight, if you get chronic illness or diseases or sick, you know, anything that you have to manage. Nobody really talks about how to navigate that. And I found that to be awful in a sense because, you know, we don't talk about it. And so then when something happens, so like, oh, 
Yeah, girl, that I'm like, so could you write a book? Like somebody should be telling us about these things. Um, My colleague and friend, Omi Shade, she has a, a podcast called The Black Girl's Guide to Menopause. And I remember us having a conversation and I'm like, yeah, why is it nobody telling us? Like, mm-hmm. I wish my mama had told me this or somebody needs to talk about it. And so she has this podcast where she's actually talking about some of the challenges if you're in menopause or perimenopause, you know, like as you're maturing in life, how different things um, impact you and your sexuality. Mm-hmm. That is so important. And I definitely recognize that as you change throughout time, your needs will change as well. I know for me, after I had my son, my body physically changed and just learning to navigate this new shell that I was in. Like, what is this? This feels weird. And, you know, I'm just trying to learn my body all over again and still now trying to reconnect with my husband. It just felt awkward at times. So yeah. I think it's important to have those type of conversations to just recognize that you will change over time and also your sexual needs will change as well. Yes. Yeah. That's so important to share. You talked about little kids and how expressive they are with their autonomy. So (laughs) I have a son. He is, um, he'll be three in a few weeks actually. And the funny thing is when, when I was pregnant with him, my husband and I were saying, yeah, we want him to, to have autonomy. We want him to know that he has autonomy over his body. And, you know, if he doesn't feel comfortable with something, he, he is able to speak up and say, no, I don't like this or whatever. And that little boy will tell you flat out, (laughs) no, don't touch me. If you ask him for a hug, he will tell you yes or no flat out. And I'm like, yeah, I love this. But it's so funny because family members sometimes get offended by it. And I'm like, well, you know, you don't always want to hug somebody. Like, why would you be upset if, if he tells you no? And I love that. And I want to continue to nurture his autonomy so that he knows that he's in control of his entire being. So what tips do you have for us and for other parents to help their children be able to develop and maintain their autonomy? I think what you've already established in your son is like the beginning of it all, like keep it up. And I think family members consider things as like, disrespect and I'll use hurt feelings but that's like you're an adult like and you know I have had conversations with my mom like so my my nephew is someone he is not a hugger and so I remember going to see my sister and they were there and I hugged his sister and then I was like hey and his mom was like you expecting him to hug you I was like "Mm -mm." (laughs) like it's okay and then it was like you know I think his dad he was like hug your aunt. And I was like, no, like, I'm okay with that. Like, I think the first thing is helping adults navigate the fact that we are trying to protect our children to help them be able to say an affirmative. No, it doesn't mean they don't love you or like you. They're still related to you and be okay. I think we need to continue to instill that in children so that, you know, there are going to be situations where you're not going to be able to say no to certain things. But when it comes to your body and when you don't want to do something with your body, that is something that isn't like, I don't know, like taking a bath, you know, (laughs) you're not going to have an option for that. But, you know, hugging someone or sitting in someone's lap, I think that instills in them a level of, I'll use the word sexual esteem, but just confidence overall to be able to assert themselves. I'm saying assert because they're not being aggressive or mean so that they can continue to do that 
throughout life. And even if there are opportunities for negotiation. So I feel like there was one instance with that same nephew that I asked for maybe like a fist bump or high five or something like that. Like it wasn't, you know, a big deal that he didn't hug me, but I wanted to connect with him in that way. I don't know. I just felt like I needed to, but even if he didn't want to give me a high five, I would have been okay with that. But it also allowed him to decide what he wanted to do. So no, you don't want to hug. Do you want to do a high five? He could have easily said no. I probably would have left it alone, but you know, it also helps them be able to think about options and negotiation. And that is super important in that way. So Mm I think helping them, they're developing their communication skills and understanding their options and protecting themselves. Mm. Keep doing it and letting them know. And then also it gives you an opportunity to ask questions. I remember something happened in my childhood and I decided not to go to someone's house for a sleepover. And I remember my mom was preparing something and she knew I really enjoyed going to this place. So it gave her an opportunity. She didn't make me go, number one. Number two, when we were sitting there, she was like, I know you really like going over there. Why didn't you want to go today? And I was like, oh, I just didn't want to. And she was like, you know, you can tell me anything if there's some reason why you didn't want to go over there. And so I, she kind of cried it out of me, but yeah. I was able to, we had a conversation to say, this is what's going on when I'm over there and I don't like to be around it. And she was like, okay. And if I didn't have that relationship with my mom, to be honest, because it some things happened to other people that I I don't know what could have happened to me. And so my mom has always kind of had in some like some ways, not so much, but definitely in other ways to allow me to assert myself and um, be able to protect myself. And so that was one instance where her parenting was like spot on. <laughs> Yeah, that's so good. You were able to open up and tell her what was going on without fear of judgment or, you know, shame. So that's really good. Yeah. Okay, Tanya. So you did mention earlier that you founded the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference. And what other resources do you have available? I offer workshops and presentations, well, right now, webinars, consultation, curriculum, writing, and development, more so like lesson planning to help people have conversations or activities around sexuality. I really enjoy, there's a model entitled The Circles of Sexuality, and it's not all-encompassing. I think it's about the facilitator bringing life to it, but it's been around for a very long time. It, It is something that I think you can teach it and have conversations about it with any age group because it talks about the aspects of our sexuality, like where I was just saying sensuality, intimacy, sexualization, sexual health and reproduction, and then identity, like sexual identity. And those five circles don't really stand alone. They kind of overlap. So there might be some things about it. So like, even I mentioned about trauma. So there may be somebody who's like, well, you know what? I'm not a hugger. I don't like people touching me. You know, that that's the sensuality circle because it's about the senses and touch. And so maybe it could be about trauma, which is the sexualization piece but it can impact their intimacy and their ability to share and care and be vulnerable and communicate that with a partner or anybody. So they don't really just stand alone, but you can talk about concepts within each circle to show how it shows up in the whole. And you can do that with young kids all the way up to adults and have like really in-depth learning. That's awesome. 
So in addition to the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference, you know, I want people to know we are out here. And I started um, a line of like swag, defining sexuality educator, um, hashtag I teach sex ed. It's a conversation starter. If you ever get on a plane with a t-shirt, a sticker or a pop socket, with some of that, people will talk to you. And that's the thing. Like once people feel comfortable with you, like conversations I've had on the planes after people ask me what my shirt meant or what exactly do I do have been pretty informing. Like I'll, I'll just go like, well, I'm not a therapist. Cause I also have to like preface to say like, mm-hmm. so I don't want to get into therapy, but I can educate you on some things and make a referral to some wonderful therapists that I know um, who are doing sex therapy as well. That's good. A nice way to, to help spread the message of yeah. sex positivity. Yeah. Okay, Tanya. So on the Holy Temple podcast, we believe that the body is a temple and that every part of it or room, if you will, deserves reverence and respect. So share with us, how do you respect and love your Holy Temple? Wow, that's so good. Like I, I'm trying to do better. I'm going to be super vulnerable and say like during this last few months going on a year, it's been challenging to like really take care. But I've also been giving myself some grace to be like, you know what? Some days I just can't. I don't know what it is, but I'm not doing it. But intentionally the last few weeks and specifically the last few days. So I've been trying to get up and dress up. Like I was working from home. So I would get up bare minimum if I didn't have to be on camera and throw on something. But the last few days, last few weeks, I'm really holding on it because the last few days I haven't been feeling the best and I want it to feel good. So one of the things that I did was to go back to like practicing kind of like my grooming. I remember I told you that I, you know, I watched my mom prepare for bed or prepare for work and like the level of detail and care that she took of her skin and her body. So I've been like really moisturizing. One, it's winter time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go a couple of days just putting on clothes and not moisturizing, that's a sight to behold. And so I, you know, I really just wanted my uh, take care of my skin and to be moisturized and actually spend the time putting the lotion on. Like I put yesterday and today, I have three layers on because I had three different things because I was like, I wanted to rebuild the moisture, but I also like the scents of some of it and like combining it together. So for me, most recently, in terms of the temples, like the outer body in a sense, it's just really moisturizing and taking care of my skin from top to bottom, like my face. I got a regimen for that. You know, my feet, I got a regimen for that. Like it's serious. It probably takes me 30 minutes out of the shower to um, to take care of all of that. Yeah, but it's a ritual that you're creating. And, and yeah. that's really nice. And I think sometimes we have to really just set that time to love on ourselves and just take that moment to, again, you're talking about the senses, but be mindful and be in that present moment and just experience that moisturizing, you know, for the example, but experience how that feels and the smells like you mentioned. So yeah, that's something I really advocate about is in particular for body care, because you just kind of forget that we need to love on our bodies as well, like exfoliate and um, body oils and, and lotions and body butters, because our bodies our skin on our bodies need that love and that, that dedicated care as well. So I love that you're doing that. That is awesome. Yeah. So do you have a mantra or a word of affirmation you like to share with our listeners today? 
I have so many things and I'm working on my dissertation and I feel like I should be so much farther ahead, but I'm also very frightened about how far along I am. And so I think my mantra is like, I'm just going to give myself grace. I'm going to give you grace, like grace all the way around. Like I, I need it from you. I don't need to extend it to you and I need to give it and accept it from myself as well. That is so real. I think we all need that. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Tanya. I really enjoy discussing sexual health and wellness with you and the importance of having sexual education across the lifespan. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Holy Temple Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend. Until the next time we meet, remember to respect your Holy Temple.